Hi, Bob Sham here. I'm the, well, the primary host of this uh, first episode of the documenteers that you're about to hear. I'm doing an intro. I didn't expect to do an intro because I, we realized well into the show that we had never introduced ourselves. My name is, of course, Bob Sham, and my main co-host on this episode is Stuart Vaughn. We love documentaries, and we love talking about documentaries, so we're going to have fun and rate documentaries and rank documentaries this is an all documentary show that features a bold new rating system so you'll want to stay tuned for that also i'll make sure Stuart's a little closer to the mic working things out on rm but we will get there i understand that he's a little soft sometimes especially compared to my bold voice that carries very well yes we hope you enjoy the show think of it like garfield when he first came on and he was very wobbly very blobby and then you cut to 10 years later, and he's uniformed, and he's clean, and he's got that iconic Garfield look. It's kind of like that. So, enjoy the show. Now, here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet. 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Well, if I had my choice, it wouldn't start at all. It would already have been. And it wouldn't end either. You know? I set up a Twitter for documenteers, but I'm only following Jim Carrey and Chris Smith. Yeah. And it took some doing to find Chris Smith's twitter because of course chris smith is a very common name yeah but he has a surprisingly not a lot of followers this is a guy that made american movie one of the funniest documentaries of all time you know yeah that's like something i think you and i agree on but i think uh maybe more people saw man on the moon than american movie no doubt i mean american movie was his most famous it's the only other one of his i've seen he did the yes man yeah he did uh Home movies, or home movie? Yeah, it's called home movie about kind of eccentric houses and the owners of those houses, uh-huh. like a house filled with fifties robots, a tree house, like a giant tree house that's some somebody's grandma lives in. She loves it. But American movie is probably his biggest movie until now. In this movie, we're going to talk yeah, about today. I I think uh, the last thing he did was almost ten years before this mm-hmm. so he takes a while to make a movie i think he's he's this movie took him at least two years to make and jim carrey's being interviewed for two straight years i don't know about that <laughs> but the uh process i think started two years ago but we will be we'll talk about the film shortly but i there's a catchphrase for our new project uh what's up docs yeah. Yeah. Is that what it's called? You got to add the S on it. You won't get sued, I don't think, if you add the S. What's up, Docs? So not D O X, but D O C S? I like X. That changes it up even more. What's up, Docs? <laughs> yeah, X with an X. Uh, official. There's an official album for Documenteers, too. REM's Document. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> And uh, how appropriate because REM has some presence. Uh, okay, now in, I'm in starting to see about. why you chose this film. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a film about a film based on a song by R.E.M. Yeah, Pushing an Elephant Up the Stairs. Is that in the song? It was a song they made for the movie. It wasn't bad. Do you like R.E.M.? Are you a fan? I think I have to be. I just, by by sheer, uh, what's the word? Overindulgence. Overindulgence. In 90s culture. Yeah, true. It was everywhere. You can escape R.E.M. We're big music fans, and you, I'm like, I'm a big music fan. It's like an addiction for you. You might say that. You're at that point where, because we're kind of like music nerds as well. Yeah. Where it's like weird. I was talking about this with a friend of mine. Where the thing that separates like a music nerd from a casual music listener is the obsession with the context of the time and where that album came from. And that, yeah. and when you're into the context, what results is you being able to kind of appreciate a song while at the same time maybe not liking that song. It's kind of like the same the same way that you can appreciate uh, sports. I think. And I can't, but it's like a similar thing. Sure. You know all the statistics right. about a band. How could this band be bad? I know all the stats. Yeah. I mean, I have a bizarre obsession with Weezer, but I know that 60, no, probably higher than that, 80% of their music is not good. Yeah. That kind of sing-songy <laughs> lullaby. But it's just something about, like, the trajectory of that band, my complicated emotions with that band from adolescence to now. And like that, that still has such a strong place. It's you know? true, and they may be a different band, but they have the same formula now. Yeah, but are we getting off topic? We are. We're way off topic. This is uh, the first episode of Documenteers. Uh, this is a podcast where it's essentially a review podcast. Now, I'm a big appreciator of documentaries. Remember when uh, Netflix first hit the scene? Yeah. And people were start people were getting those discs. That seems like so long ago. Yeah. I still know people who get discs. Do you still know people who get Netflix discs? I you know, I got in late. I never got the discs in the mail. We were getting the discs for a while and I remember um It sounds fun. I might do it just to be part of it. I was waiting trying to get the original Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy the BBC series, oh, yeah. I guess. But they didn't have certain discs. Oh, and they had others. It, it was very, it was very new. But then they did the streaming, and we bought into that, and eventually faded out the discs. And there wasn't a lot on it, but there was a ton of documentaries. It's right. documentaries, documentaries, and we watched so many. And I love documentaries, but if I'm going to say who in my life is like a very auteur documentary expert or closest to uh, it, I know where you're going. It's got to be you. What me? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know where you're going. Sorry. But we are documenteers, and we well, I, I appreciate that. We're going to tongue in cheek, loosely review. This is a review show, so keep that in mind when you're hearing like rando clips and stuff. That we are reviewing these works of art. Yeah. And our and our goal is to, I guess, what is our goal to explore? Right. I love, and also the fact that Chris Smith had maybe of the same amount of followers as I had before I deleted my old Twitter account. I need to, we need to turn these people more into rock stars, you know? Right. They shouldn't be humble. People like Joel Schumacher and McGee be the directors that get all the glory and the fame. When Chris Smith made American movie, a a beloved documentary. Maybe he should change his name to Mick C. I'm going to, I'm going to tweet him after we record this. I think that might turn things around for him. But uh, yeah, you follow us at documenteers on Twitter. I'm following Jim Carrey, too. you got to check out that Twitter account, my friend. Really? Oh, yeah. But we'll discuss his frame of mind. 
as we go further in. He's an artist now, right? He is. Is it anything like John Lurie's Twitter account? Have you followed that? No, no. John Lurie of uh, the Lounge Lizards and Jim Jarmusch movies. Oh, yes, yes, okay. He's just a painter now. Well, not just a painter, but mainly a painter. I saw a a brief, maybe it was like a Vulture doc or Vice. It was like a 10-minute documentary about how he is, Jim Carrey is painting now. It was a lot of stuff. I didn't think it was that bad. It's very much like, well, there's a frame of mind in Jim. I have this theory that he's going through his college phase, like right now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. He grew up in in the public eye, didn't he? So he never really had that adolescence. Yeah, I don't think he went to college. Maybe he had the adolescence, and now he's having... Yeah. With the adolescence, would that have been just most of his career that we saw? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of... the con- I mean, the movie covers it. We are talking about Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, featuring a very special contractually obligated mention of Tony Clifton, directed by Chris Smith, uh, produced by Spike Jones and Vice Productions. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing. I was, I was actually looking into this uh, a little bit, and apparently Jim Carrey had kind of thrown out there to a few friends and people, I guess, that during the filming of Man on the Moon, his film about Andy Kaufman, that the entire thing had been filmed for the four months of the shooting. And that there was 100 hours of footage of him behind the scenes, which it's been known and kind of if you look into it that he was entirely in character what you'd call method acting, the entire shooting of the yeah. film. Even, apparently, we see in the documentary, even offset, he was still Andy Kaufman sometimes. Yes. And the lines between reality and fiction were blurred. And that's what fascinated, I guess, Spike Jones. And then he started to beg Jim Carrey, let me see some of this footage. <laughs> and eventually he relented and showed him some. And eventually then he was able to get all the footage the ball started rolling to make a documentary. And this footage sat there for 20 years. Nearly 20 years, yeah. Yeah. yeah gosh, it seems so long ago. I mean, Jim Carrey's trajectory, I mean, there are adults that are grown now that have no memory of, I mean, we remember as of our age, Jim Carrey was the biggest comedic star. Of, of the 90s, for yes, sure. Yes, no doubt about it. Bigger than any other, I'd say. Even Adam Sandler at the time was kind of more of a, fringe at times he eventually towards the end of the 90s he had Waterboy. yeah it wasn't really until Waterboy that adam sandler kind of broke through in a big way adam sandler another huge one and jim carrey had to have been the only person who was bigger than him he got 20 million dollars for a movie i'm trying to remember which one it was he was a 10 million dollar man for a while i think the mask he made well, 10 million he, that's the what well, cable I, guy cable he got guy. 20 million dollars really? for cable guy wow you know how much that movie made worldwide? Yeah, like a hundred and six million dollars. Oh well, and a lot more than twenty million. So he he was twenty percent of that movie. That movie seemed like not like it didn't do well. Right? No, but I guess it was better than Man of the Moon. It's one of my favorite ones, but it is definitely different. And a lot yeah. of people were they kind of had established uh, strong expectations for him when that movie came out when it came off a little dark. I liked it, but I was like a weirdo kid. And I think that movie yeah. is holding up much better now in retrospect. It's interesting. If you look at Cable Guy, it kind of shows like where Jim Carrey was eventually going to go as a as you know, a choice of roles and kind of a darker, weirder yeah. side of him up to maybe the movie number 23. Have you seen that movie? No, I have not. I haven't either. But it seems like that's a movie I have to see now. 
Yeah. Especially now that we're doing this. Well, it's not a documentary. so it's, you, Right, I guess I don't have to see you it. You won't be able to rate it in our 1 through 5 Herzog scale, but you can use the Clint Howard scale 1 through 5. But still, it's a part of the documenteers? No, maybe like down the road, some paywall. You can pay $500 and listen to our 23 episode. Is it 23? Number 23. Number 23 episode. Because it's going to be that good, and you're going to want to pay that it's much. It's funny, because at the time, I had a friend... He was obsessed with numbers and I wasn't 23, but he, that's kind of where he lost me. But he was telling me all these things like, look, man, all these things add up to 23 in your life. You're working on the 23rd floor. If I add up the ages of your girlfriends and then subtract the number of girlfriends, the number's 23. If you deduct 16 years off your age, you're 23. Yeah, he kept telling me that. <laughs> the number 23 has huge significance in my life personally. I can't remember the point of why he said that. But then that movie, The Number 23 by Jim Carrey came out. My friend never mentioned anything about The Number 23 again. Whoa. Like it ruined him. Right. Probably he was like. Became too pop. It's almost like my friend created Manifestation. You think he's a chaos magician? My friend might be, yeah. This episode might be all about chaos magic when you think about it. It's true. Yeah. But yes, the documenteers. We want to watch every documentary ever. Really? Yes. Now, I got to confess, this is a bit of a polyamorous relationship because uh, my my lovely wife, Angela, will be joining me on some true crime episodes. Our mutual friend, Drew, he's a big sports guy. I know you don't like sports. We're going to talk about sports documentaries. Right. And maybe a few more features. I, uh, got, we, I got a friend that was in a cult. He's going to watch a couple cult movies with me as well. We're going to discuss that movie and him being in a cult and what that was like. So oh, that'll wow. be fun. But I just want funny. you to know... That you're my number one in this polyamorous. I consider you the documentary expert. What do they say in the Mormon religion? The main mother or something? The main mother? <laughs> yeah. The the main sister wife. Yeah, the sister wife main. Yeah. Sis, the boss sister wife. I They never, I mean, do, do you think it's, it's never a puppy pile, right? It's always like one at a time. Yeah. Seems like you just, if you're going to do that, then go puppy pile. I don't understand. You know, all I know about. Uh, Mormonism is from uh, the Seventh-day Adventists, which aren't really Mormon, and the uh, uh, TV series Big Love, Bill Paxton. Which, how many uh, uh, how many Clint Howards would you give Big Love, the series? Oh, well, with, with a TV show, you wouldn't give it a, a scale of Arsenio Halls? You're right, it's TV, it's Arsenio Halls. I, I apologize. Well, he is the king of TV, as, as we all know. Uh, he also appears in this uh, documentary we're going to be discussing today. That's true. <laughs> Looking very confused. <laughs> that's what's great about Arsenio, and that's why he represents television in my mind. He's confused much like the audience, the executives, and the creative team behind most television. Confusion reigns. Chaos reigns. We are back and forth upside down in our topics today. We're talking about the movie and then talking about our setup and going back and forth. But hey, you got to let us be newborn babes trying the world out. Right, this is our first episode. But God, we're going to be so good at the end. Do you want to get back on the subject? Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, featuring a very special, contractually obligated mention of Tony Clifton. About Jim Carrey behind the scenes. On Man on the Moon. As we were saying, a lot of the footage in this documentary is called from that 100 hours of footage. Can you imagine that? 100 hours. Yes. Over four months. So what I'm told from my research is the first pass was made by uh, Chris Smith's editor, 
who worked with him on American Movie and all his other films. He then went through this 100 hours of footage and culled it down to three and a half hours, which is the version that Chris Smith saw, which was just, I guess, all the key moments and parts that were yeah, we don't need terribly the, connected. Don't we don't know. need the 45 minutes of uh, Jim Clifton smoking a cigarette. <laughs> this movie. Wow. I don't know where to begin this thing. It's a beast. I, I, I There was a lot of ups and downs in the way I perceived in the way, of course, uh, there is some uh, riffable controversy. I think there's, I'm hearing uh, a lot of reports coming down the pike of people who've seen this movie that are coming from it being like, Jim Carrey is just an entitled douche. But he wasn't like, and maybe he is now. Yeah. But he wasn't always like that. He kind of was a very working class kid from a small town in Ontario doing Terrible impersonations. You know, it's like, uh, I think at the time that I saw Man of the Moon, it, was, it came out in 1999. I remember being pretty excited to see this movie. Same here. I was peaking in my uh, Andy Kaufman interest probably around that time. Right. And there wasn't really any any way to know much about Andy Kaufman at the time. You could see like a few documentaries about his wrestling era. There wasn't really much. There were a few TV specials on VHS because that's the era we're dealing with really. I had his TV special, the VHS, where the where the screen is messed up. And then he did the uh, My Breakfast with Blassie, which I guess was his take on My Dinner with Andre, maybe. I don't know. What's... Do you own a copy of Heartbeeps? Oh, no. I I've would... seen it. I would have figured you might own it. I think I maybe have a bootleg. (laughs) Whoa, are you okay with admitting you have a bootleg of heart heart beeps? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, heavily bootlegged heart beeps. That was actually, I think, Andy Kaufman's last film was heart beeps. Was it? Yes. Was there any other feature films he was in? I think so. You know, we should really probably look that up. You know, some things you're going to have to... Research on your own after this discussion, if you're so inclined. But I know for a fact that they kind of play with the continuity of his life. In fact, saying that his uh, Carnegie Hall appearance, which is also on VHS, was his last appearance uh, before an audience, before he eventually succumbed to cancer in real life. But that was not actually his final appearance. His, his last appearance was on an unreleased pilot, a TV show called The Top that was never actually released. The Top? What was the show about? So it was kind of like a Saturday Night Live without any comedy and only musical guests. <laughs> Sounds like right up his alley. And he was the host of the, the first inaugural episode. It featured an Appearance by the Hollies and uh, the Romantics. That wouldn't really have made for much of an interesting film to go to that. Sure. <laughs> that now we get to look at what happened behind the scenes of this movie. Because Jim Carrey's version of Andy Kaufman is kind of embellished and over the top. You kind of get a, a version of Andy Kaufman. In Jim's words, Andy Kaufman just took him over and he was piloting that plane. Right. But I don't necessarily believe that. (laughs) Those were his words. That's true. But really, I think Jim Carrey needed a break from being Jim Carrey. And he doesn't exactly admit that in this documentary, but that's the takeaway I'm getting. And so he decided to pretend to be, I guess, one of his idols, Andy Kaufman. When when Jim Carrey was... he was talking about how special Andy was and what made him unique. But I got this vibe that he was talking about himself. And in, the, in these descriptions that he's saying, 
you get the feeling that like that that line, not just like not just him on the set being these characters, but him in this interview is kind of blurring this line between how he views Andy Kaufman and how he views himself. Right. Because there's moments where like it just seems like your ego is beyond, dude. And then he might say something that kind of like puts himself in check. Like he says at one point in the film that he and Andy didn't have the same personality. Maybe he was just saying that because I, Jim Carrey was saying a lot of shit in this movie and he was all over the place. And they showed the footage and this is probably done on purpose by Chris Smith. It was very smart when they were showing the, the film footage of the kid. Was that kid Jim or Andy? I think it was Andy. I think it was Jim. I mean, I don't know because I've never seen that footage before. It is interesting to me to make a movie about a movie that really – we're not talking about a movie that was a huge hit. Man of the Moon actually lost a lot of money. And Milos Forman, the director, didn't make another film for, I think, uh, 16 years. In a lot of ways, you could say this movie is a kind of a flop that we're talking about here. I saw this movie in the theater because I was totally on board with the subject matter. I did too, and that was because I worked in a movie theater at the time and could get in free. I don't know if I'd seen it otherwise. Maybe I would have probably. I was enough of a fan of Andy Kaufman and Jim Carrey to go see it. So Jim Carrey says that he entered a fugue state before the filming began. So I think that he was exercising some demons, working through some things, and even in his recollections of the past, He's kind of got a rosy-colored version of events to where he says that all these things he's reflecting on about Andy and the dichotomy between him and Andy, they are skewed. So whereas you look at Jim Carrey, who's basically been on his own making movies, making his own decisions, whereas Jim Ca or uh, Andy Kaufman, sorry. <laughs> That's going to happen a lot. Yeah, Andy Kaufman had multiple collaborators, worked with Bob Zemuda. You see behind the scenes now, Jim just thinks, I can just be Andy Kaufman all the time to everyone at all points. He hasn't really uh, <laughs> figured out the, the uh, appropriate uh, barriers. <laughs> Early in the film, they're on the set, the cast of Taxi is on the set of Man on the Moon shooting those old clips. And Judd Hirsch, I thought this was interesting, said that he didn't really know Andy. And that, and I'm sure, I mean, no doubt that Andy was an eccentric weirdo who was probably right. putting it on a lot. But it seems like Andy was probably a guy that just kind of was doing his own thing for a long time. Right. Or just like, he wasn't a guy that was walking around being like, hey, fuck you, like all the time. He was probably most of the time in his dressing room, just kind of keeping to himself. He seemed like more of a quiet, private person than truly some guy that just went around and made everyone's life miserable. Yeah, I mean, there is the book uh, by Bob Zemuda where it kind of embellishes and he's come out and said, and people that knew Andy Goffin have said, like, well, he's, he's kind of like adding a little bit of extra to the truth, saying that there was all these, you know, events that happened on the set of Taxi that were kind of legendary. But I don't know if that was the everyday occurrence, although he's entirely on the set of Taxi, probably in character. So sure. a lot of people didn't know. And that's maybe the interesting thing is like nobody really knew how Andy Kaufman necessarily was, except one guy who is what you'd call not necessarily truthful. Right. which is Bob's Muda and Lynn Merkelis, who's, I think that's how you say her last name, but that's Andy Kaufman's girlfriend, right. who's also on set during Man of the Moon. 
both of these people are content to leave the mystery of Andy Kaufman going, which is that you didn't really know what was a setup, what wasn't a setup. And now, the way the world is now, we can look up all kinds of television bits that Andy Kaufman did beyond just the Letterman stuff that are portrayed. You can see, like, tiny public access stations in character doing crazy stuff. Did uh, did you bring your checkbook? No. Well, let me go get my checkbook. Yeah. We're going to write ourselves a check for $10 million. Podcasting services rendered. And then we're going to actualize this in the future. We are going to be the richest podcasters. Let's go for five years. Yeah, five years. No, wait, three. Maybe, like, it won't be one lump. Maybe, like, we can add them up together. I don't know. What if we just start with, like, $100? All right, I'll write a $100 check for podcast. I think I could probably get that by the end of next year. Yeah, well, let's give Come ourselves on. three years to get $100, and I think that's <laughs> And I want to talk more about Bob Zamuda based on what he says later in the movie. Right. Jim was talking about Tony Clifton and talking about how Tony Clifton, this is a, this is a thing where you think Jim is full of himself. And then he says something later that seems like he understands it. But yeah. he's, he was talking about how Tony Clifton was, he was a personality type that reacted against people who thought that they were better than him. And when he said that, I immediately wrote, Tony Clifton would hate Jim Carrey. <laughs> right. And I think at some point he does uh, say something against. Uh, yeah, what does he say? He's a he's, he's a fraud. fraud. <laughs> Jim Carrey's a fraud. And Chris Smith asked him about that. Yeah. And what did I can't remember quite what Jim said. I think he was trying to like be fluffy about it. We could pull that. Pull it. All right. <laughs> Don't make me edit too much. <laughs> well, wait, unless you wrote it down, man. No, I didn't. Okay. So. Yeah, and it's interesting to me that, you know, before he, he really gets into the Tony Clifton parts, uh, Jim as Andy, who now on set only will be addressed as Andy, just seems to not really know how to do Andy exactly mm -hmm. offset. So he kind of goes between this weird kind of not quite Jim kind of Andy Kaufman, more like the foreign man character yeah. that Andy Kaufman does on the set of Taxi, mm -hmm. and just maintaining that with his turtleneck uptight right <laughs> then when he gets to be tony clifton that's when i feel like that's what really what if if jim carrey had it his way this would be the tony clifton movie yes and, and <laughs> just driving cars into buildings freaking out insurers yeah well even on this even on just the man of the moon would be retitled the tony clifton story and even the best parts of man of the moon are probably the tony clifton moments yeah his his nightclub routine is you know on point. Mm -hmm. What did you think of uh, like a few years ago? Bob Zamuda came back and was. I mean he he didn't say he was Bob Zamuda, but it was Bob yeah. Zamuda. Yeah. I I don't know if I felt I felt like maybe it was a little. Uh, uh, I felt uh, maybe more pity. He still does that. I He's think still it's still something he does, and uh, he he often would do it on on this uh, most of the, his Letterman appearances. Tony Clifton's Letterman appearances are Bob's Muda. Oh, really? I think almost all of them. Yeah, I know it was Bob a lot of the time. And even towards the end of the making of Man of the Moon, we see in the end of the documentary, actually, this this moment occurs, where we see that uh, Bob's Muda shows up to the Playboy Mansion for a party Yes. as Tony Clifton. Now, I had heard this story before. Yeah, me too. But there was an element to that story that was not covered in the documentary that I've heard. What's that? Is that like 
yes, that was Bob Zamuda and Jim Carrey wasn't there and he shows up later. But apparently Tony Clifton had gotten a, uh, how shall we say, a bajet from from maybe a bunny. I can't remember exactly where I've heard this. I want to say I've heard it from Bob Zamuda himself. Maybe it was like an episode of WTF or something. I don't know. Maybe any listener can like isolate that and point it out. But he had admitted that he had got uh, a bunny to blow him because the bunny thought he was Jim Carrey. And that when Jim Carrey shows up, like she freaked out. And why and why wouldn't she? You wow. know, I thought it was going to like touch base on that because I swear I've heard Bob himself tell that story. Allegedly. So if anyone knows more about that. Well, maybe we'll be reading about Bob Zamuda in the news. I think he's next. Uh, Matt Lauer just went down. Um, Bob Zamuda, this guy who's played Tony Clifton for uh, over 30 years, is going to be brought down. Well, by, someone's got to stop him. Yeah, by a blowjob at the Playboy Mansion. Now, it seems to me that most people are not amused. Uh, makeup guys just kind of, he blasts the stereo when he's getting his makeup done. And the guy just looks at the camera like, oh, God. And just it looks like people are just wanting to go home because it takes forever to get start shooting scenes when he's Tony Clifton. Milos looks like he's too old for this shit, basically. What about the uh, actor, was it uh, Gary Baker, Barker? Who plays his dad? Yeah. Did you catch that moment? Yeah. A, a, a <laughs> weirdly personal. That guy was into the role. Yeah, he's... He's playing. He's playing his father. Comes in method acting as Andy Kaufman's father to Jim Carrey playing Andy Kaufman, and they get into this kind of back and forth kind of thing, ending with Jim Carrey as Andy Kaufman yelling at him <laughs> because I guess he can't take what he's dishing. <laughs> right. Yells at him until he leaves the trailer, and then the the makeup artist breaks down and starts right. crying. Because what else is your reaction to this insanity? It reminded her of her father. That's kind of the weird thing where it seems like you're just being kind of like an annoying shit, presuming upon someone that you never met. But at the same time, people are having legit emotional reactions. Right. It makes me think that a lot of people in the set are having, it's like a weird primal therapy session. Yeah. Make it in this film. It's like, no, maybe they're not on any psychedelics or anything, but it seems yeah. like everyone's just like caught in a trip. Everyone's in this weird moment. You have like all these actors playing themselves 20 some years later, playing themselves, you know, when younger versions of themselves. And then you have Danny Vito in there, not playing himself, but playing against the actors that he played in the taxi show with as Andy Kaufman's manager, right. Bob Shapiro. Do you think uh, Danny DeVito's went method with the penguin? It seemed like that was the only time. Right. You have to think, where was he, he coming off the penguin at this point? Oh, Batman Returns is like 91 or two. Right. So he probably had eight years to reflect on his role in the penguin. And he decided to use this opportunity to. Is there going to be a movie? <laughs> Oh, 100 hours of behind-the-scenes footage of Batman Returns? I hope so. I would watch that. But Danny DeVito always just seems like he's just Danny DeVito. Except for maybe the Penguin, but he's just all done up on makeup and stuff. This is like an interesting period of filmmaking, too. 99. It's kind of like the last hurrah of Hollywood, really. If you think about it, there isn't that many years later that piracy kind of kills the movie industry and their basic inability to understand what the public wants mm -hmm. 
which has always been their case in point, them making Man on the Moon. And video stores are starting to kind of, this is kind of the beginning of their decline. Right. I'm pretty sure I bought Man on the Moon on at like a Hollywood video, some four for $20. Right. That I, at the time I thought was an amazing deal. There's at some point an executive in Hollywood saying, you know what we should do? Make a movie about that R.E.M. song. About the elephant in the no, stairs? No, I'm saying that this is a song. Let's say, let's say, let's say what it is. This movie <laughs> is based on a song by R.E.M. on the album, hit album, Automatic for, for the, the people. people. This is a point where R.E.M. is the cause of this movie. We brought up R.E.M. earlier in the episode here. Yeah. But R.E.M. created the momentum that carried this movie into production along with Jim Carrey. It takes many cooks to make this movie. Milos Foreman coming off uh, The People versus Larry Flint. Yes. He says, you know what? I'm going to bring my my star power to this. I'm also going to bring Courtney Love along, another 90s icon, uh, to reprise her role. Yes, of, as uh, a girlfriend of a lead. Yes. <laughs> you know, excel at it. That's what That's what she's great at. You know, and my wife, she watched this movie with me, Angela, uh, who you will hear on other episodes, uh, pointed out that Lynn Margulies looked younger than Courtney Love, who was playing Lynn Margulies from 20 years previously. Right. Wow. Well, then perfect casting. <laughs> I mean, Lynn Margulies looked great. It seemed to me like she could have played herself. <laughs> she just didn't have the acting chops. Yeah, I guess not. Oh, my. Love. Now, Andy, we were talking about the real emotions. I think she won like an Academy Award, a Golden Globe for Larry Flynn. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think you're right. And Jim was nominated. I think he won two Golden Globes: one for The Truman Show and one for Man on the Moon. Yeah. So, which at the time, those were his best movies in terms of like serious acting, I suppose. Andy Kaufman's family comes around on this set. And talking about those emotions in contrast to, like, the bullshit you smell watching this movie, that's it, it becomes very complicated for the viewer because well, I'm watching it and you're and Jim's going off on this, I don't know, I had to, like, check to make sure he wasn't a Scientologist, like the way he would talk about himself <laughs> and his career. He kind of had that vibe, didn't you think? It's just in the air, I think, up there. But Andy's sister shows up first. We see Andy's real-life parents show up later but she was for real having a very emotional moment and jim would i have to imagine it was kind of surreal for them and i don't i don't know if we can really say what they were feeling at the time or or anything if they know even what was their version it made me curious as to what their version of andy was because he was i mean obviously that's his family but like how was he at home he probably was putting and on and they probably saw things on the cutting room floor, but they probably experienced a very private kind of to themselves Andy, just like a lot of people did. And it seems so because Jim all Jim was always Jim when he was talking to Bob Zabuda. Did you notice that? He never seemed to be. He would kind of go in and out of the Andy mode to like have a laugh or something. But he was talking as Jim Carrey when he was with Bob Zabuda. Wow. I didn't notice that. There was a few times when he broke, like the first time Jerry Lawler grabbed him in the hall, and he was like, all right, man, after Lawler was like, I can do this to you anytime." <laughs> I think he broke then. But, yeah, it, it was kind of interesting how he would kind of beat Jim with Bob when he met Andy's family. It, there was nothing in him that was like, oh, they actually kind of knew him way personally 
maybe I'll tone it down. No, he was the full Andy. But he was the public persona of Andy. He was the Andy that we all know. And eventually he's dealing with Jerry Lawler. All right. And tell us about his, Jim Carrey, Jim is Andy's interactions with uh, Jerry. Uh, wrestling Hall of Famer. I think he's a wrestling Hall of Famer. I think the first time we see them meet in the documentary, he's throwing things at Jerry Lawler, trying to entice him. And I think he's kind of back in the mode of like, oh, yeah, now I get to come alive again and do antics. And Jerry Lawler <laughs> is not having this. Yeah. Because Jerry's not feeling Jerry's not feeling this like oh he's in his method I gotta allow for this artistry he's just like don't fucking throw eggs at me or I'm going to like choke you out because Jerry and Andy they were in on these bits together right Andy just, wasn't hounding him just like most wrestlers I think uh, Lawler says that he Andy was also like weirdly formal with him. When they weren't in front of a camera or in the ring, they'd be like Mr. Lawler. Like it, it, there was a relationship where they respected each other professionally, but it wasn't. But Andy Coffin was not like behind in the in the dressing room throwing eggs at Jerry Lawler or spitting on him. If the cameras are rolling and you're in your mode, you do that. <laughs> but but Jim was just like, well, Andy's taking me over, and he wants to be a complete shit to Jerry Lawler. Not Jerry Lawler, yeah. the wrestler, but Jerry Lawler, the human being. Right, and I think what we realized from this footage of behind the scenes is that in Jim's mind, the cameras are always on, which they were, and he was always performing. And we we see that earlier in the film, right, when he's he's going, he takes the camera crew to Ambulance Studios so he can harass Steven Spielberg. Oh, who, right. Who doesn't happen to be there, <laughs> but who is that for if not for <laughs> – the footage that we are seeing now. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting how we were meant to see this. Yes. If we should have, I don't know, <laughs> but we're seeing it now. So, yeah, Lawler does grab, we mentioned this earlier, Lawler grabs Jim. And I think that's when Jim, he's not Andy after Lawler is like, doing whatever he did. We didn't get a good angle on it. It was like in a hallway and people were like having to jump in. Oh, yeah. So we don't know. But I think he was Jim after something happened to him in there. There was a point after that where he seemed to calm down a little bit. Yeah. And, <laughs> and just try and make it through this film. Well, Milo's commented that, like, when they're stepping off a food truck, that, like, Tony was a lot more bearable after you fed him. <laughs> <laughs> you could probably imagine Milos is just trying to feed him constantly. There's a quote from Courtney Love that I heard that when uh, Jim Carrey was in character as Tony Clifton, that he would fill his clothing with Limburger cheese so that he would stink, extra extra stink, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> so people would want to be around him. <laughs> I'm surprised we didn't see more Courtney in this movie. You figure with her reputation that she would kind of, could be a big part of this swirl, but she was in some limited shoots, I believe. I think she could kind of smell what was in the air. Yeah. <laughs> her better instincts took over. Yeah. Now, Jim Carrey, he, now the way he talks throughout this movie it's not like he's talking about the secret or something or it's it's known by many other things uh i wrote down joel osteen style when he was talking about actualizing that check 
uh, when he was on Oprah talking about how he would get that check. Like, I think it was the mask is when right. he made his first ten million dollar check. Uh, yeah, there's a takeaway, and he's trying to he's trying to feed feed us as as the obvious obvious audience. He's trying to feed us this kind of thing. It's like the takeaway is all this great achievement, and I'm still unhappy. Yeah, because I was never happy. Uh-huh. And I never. I, I always know. love it when like. Uh... I mean, anyone, no matter what your income is, you can experience depression and unhappiness. And I feel like when you meet people with, like, high income, they're very quick to point that out. And it's like, well, yeah, you're a human being. But it's often brought up in a sense of, like, trying to even even out with, like, maybe the more regular people. But the regular people are also can be depressed and maybe struggle to pay a bill one month or something. It's kind of like... A big difference, like everyone gets depressed across the board, and you don't want to like put that down. When you say like, "Oh, I had all this success, but I was still depressed," it's well, no shit, because you're still like a human being, but you still are not dealing with things that a lot of regular people have to deal with on a daily basis. Right, like he never put his selfish tendencies in check at any point, and you don't get the idea that he necessarily has now and if you're gonna look at what why he might still be unhappy even now and why he's secluded himself on the mountain the protagonist in an Ayn Rand book it's for the same reasons that a character in an Ayn Rand book would do it because they think that society doesn't appreciate him or he doesn't feel appreciated so he's gone into reclusion to paint yeah and now he's uh, a a a philosopher uh uh and uh pontificator and who is contradicting himself at the end of every paragraph consciously or subconsciously this is why i wrote jim is going through a college phase at how old is he now it's middle-aged now yeah but he is going through a college phase i don't think he went you know remember when we were in college and we're absorbing all this new stuff and we're like you know what, maybe, man, we're all just like, uh, maybe there is no free will, man. And you're you're high or you're uh, experimenting with, with your drugs and you're right. very much going through spirituality. But you're young, so you're not, like, talking about these experiences with any objective, like, what does that mean, like you would when you're older. When you're older, you kind of more understand, or at least awful people do, that you don't really know what the fuck you're doing oftentimes. But at that age, you, you'll you discover something on an emotional or spiritual level. And you'll talk about it as if you were the Marco Polo who has just discovered this and can now, like, at a cocktail party, explain it to everyone. Right. That's something that people go through when they're, like, 19 or 20. Right. And Jim... Yeah. He exploded. He gets on in living color. So arguably in living color up to Cable Guy, Truman Show, that's peak Jim Carrey. That's high money Jim Carrey. I remember coming back to school and everyone's recapping the funny things that happened on in living colors. Like, oh, didn't you see? They really took it to the handicap and the homeless. That'll that'll show them, you know, with handyman. (laughs) Yeah, wow. And he was like Fire Marshal Bill, a burn victim. Wow. When we saw that, within four years, he's in the stratosphere. So how old is he at that time? He's very young. He's in his 20s. And there's this thing when when celebrities, like, they explode. Yeah. There's something about him that is, like, trapped in this moment. Right. So he's trapped in this 90s vibe, 90s way of thinking almost. Yeah. He's, he's stuck in this kind of, what? what is it? Uh, 
not quite the 80s where it's all, you know, all about self-focus and, you know, selfishness, but mm-hmm. a, just a slightly better version of that. Yes, yes. It's definitely a little more mature. But, like, he's someone who, at a certain point, people did not say no to this guy. Right. So he didn't know how to kind of look at it. Like, with us, people told us no various times throughout our lives. We're in our 30s now, and we look back at ourselves and, like, what a what a fucking asshole that guy was. Like, uh, what a what the fuck was that guy even complaining about, you know? But Jim is just, like, uh, he's a chaos magician, man. He has full control over everything, man. There's no free will. Right. Yeah. You're thirsty. That's why you pick up this glass. <laughs> if there's no free will, then he is special, more special than everyone else, I suppose, right? Yeah, I get I get that same thing from listening. If you ever hear, like, uh, Marilyn Manson in interviews these days, mm. it's like a similar thing. Like, these these stars that were so popular and now have kind of been forced to, like, look at themselves <laughs> – a little more closely than they were able to in the past yes. because things are slowing down. Yeah. You have more time to reflect and have inner thoughts if you want. Yes. But like Taylor Swift, she like got huge at what, like 15, something like that. Right. And she's still writing songs about the boy she broke up with last month. Yeah. And it's always about that. And I'm, and I'm not, I don't really mean to put down Taylor Swift. I know a lot of people like her for various reasons and people who don't like right. her. But she is going to be in that mode because that's the mode that put her in the stratosphere. She's always going to write like, like, like a teenager that's pretty good at writing songs. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think Jim is like that too. He's in that mode where he's like, I just got Ace Ventura, and it's about to be the biggest movie this year. Right. <laughs> and I guess, from what I hear, he is uh, not seeing Jay McCartney anymore. Oh, uh, that was a long time ago. Right. I thought they had a kid together, that, and that kid that she had, that is, has, she thought had autism, but has Asperger's, but they dated for several years. Yeah. And he had another girlfriend who had drug problems and died and her family tried to take her take Jim Carrey to like civil court. It didn't seem like he it seemed like this woman just had her own set of issues. But Jim is an anti-vaxxer. Yeah, is he still? Yeah, I think uh, there was a tweet from 2015. He wouldn't call himself an anti-vaxxer. He's anti-stuff that's in vaccines. Right, that he like thinks mercury shouldn't. or something, right? They say mercury and some other thing with like a th something, but mm-hmm. um, but it's just people presuming something that people who've spent all their lives and research and many hours determining. And but Jim is just some guy being like, I don't like the way that sounds, and uh, you should take that out. <laughs> so, you know, we're going to have some anti-vaxxers uh, listening to this. I'm sure, right? What, do you, what would you have to say to them? Uh, do some more research. Yeah. Before you... <laughs> Understand the nature of science. You know, we might laugh at someone... You might laugh at someone who thinks the Earth is 6,000 years old. But then that same person will be like, uh, vaccines give my kids autism. This is one thing about... This is the preventative aspect of medicine. I knew we were going to go on this tangent. But vaccinations... Kind of keep in mind, there was a Spanish flu, like, right, right around the First World War that killed millions of people all around the globe. Yeah. This is why we have things like this. And don't presume 
scientists have, they do test studies. They spend their lives understanding and doing this. And this is a preventive medicine. I know the problem that creates a lot of doubt in American medicine is that a lot of it is for profit. It seems like you're just treating the symptoms and not the cure. But a vaccine is a rare case of a preventative medicine actually functioning economically because you don't want all these people dying of like mutated flu viruses because that's going to be bad for the economy. There's there's a complete economical impetus I get it. to prevent this. So you're saying it helps capitalism. Yeah. So good. And I mean, <laughs> it also helps to not die. But it right. just so happens that that overlaps. So this idea that there's some conspiracy, I mean, maybe one time there was a bad batch and they had to straighten it out, but it's not, no medicine company wants their drugs to like murder people or give them like brain diseases or anything like that. It just wouldn't make any sense. Right. I'll probably cut this part out. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I want to talk about Bob Zamuda again. Okay. Do you remember the point in the movie where he was talking about, he was talking to Jim because Jim was Jim when he's talking to Bob. And he was talking about how Andy was creatively bankrupt up to a certain point Mm -hmm. and that Bob Zamuda took over. And that's where Bob Zamuda started flying the ship. The way he described it was almost like Mighty Mouse was the peak of what Andy could bring to the table and Bob had to kind of carry the rest of it. Well, Andy's not here to to answer that. That's right, yeah. I mean, it smelled like bullshit. <laughs> so, is Bob Zermuda responsible for heartbeats based on his claims? It's his idea to do heartbeats. You can blame Bob Zamuda for that, based on his account. Yeah, well, it's not like uh, things got better and better after that, really, right? <laughs> right. He, he went to wrestling women and, and then getting... Banned from Saturday Night Live, and then he was his only television avenue was Letterman. Remind us why he was banned from SNL. Okay, so after Lauren Michaels left, after Lauren Michaels, this is the real version of events, not the movie version of events. Man on the Moon version of events are different, right? But after Lauren Michaels left, it was taken over by somebody's name i'm forgetting yeah this is the gilbert godfrey year yes right eddie murphy had come along he was probably the only real huge star at that point so in the 80s there was a different producer lauren michaels i guess left for some reason or was trying to start other projects and andy kaufman was still coming on but all he wanted to do was wrestle women and since lauren michaels wasn't there to rein him in i think that he was able to do that more and more because the current producer really didn't know obviously what to do because he also had what Robert Downey Jr., young Robert Downey Jr. That's right on there, and decided to bring on I don't know was it Joe, Piscopo Joe Piscopo that year. Yeah. So it was kind of a rough time for Satellite. It was almost canceled, and I, it sounded like a kind of a ratings gamble to say like, okay, everyone, we're gonna give Andy Kaufman one more chance, and we're gonna put up a vote. Now, if you want Andy to stay, <laughs> call this number. If you want Andy to Never come back to Saturday Night Live and get banned. Call this number. Well, you can imagine how it went. You got a lot more calls for banning. Even as each cast member was coming on to say, please don't ban Andy Kaufman. Even then, uh, most of the audience of television was trolls. Sure. So. Oh, we've always had trolls. There's, They just all have platforms now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the first season of the SNL was considered so fresh. 
and then that second right, season. Right, he was on the first episode ever. Yes, the Jim and Andy film shows him trying out for SNL, that footage. I right. think I think Andy would have made, like, I wouldn't say a straight man, almost like how Phil Hartman, he was a straight man. He was approaching over the top, but he was still, like, at this level. Like, how Phil Hartman could just be a regular guy, and he could say something, and it would still be funny, even mm-hmm. if it's just, it's just direct. I think Andy would have been really great at that, being, like, the dad of some defunct family. It's kind of too bad we didn't see that aspect of it. It seems like he didn't really want to play along. And if if you look, he only ever did one uh, straight role where he played a character, and that character was one of his characters. Right. Foreign Man as Lodka. Lodka. On Taxi. And that wasn't, you know, what would he have done other than that, I guess? Maybe Elvis? He would have done his Elvis impersonation as a character? <laughs> What's your favorite aspect of Andy Kaufman? What's your favorite era? I kind of like, I like the wrestling era, annoying the audience directly in that way. That's like, that, that's a lot of fun for me. That's kind of the aspect of wrestling that I like the best. With wrestling, I like everything until they start wrestling. And then that's like the boring part. There's a number of bits. He tends to do these bits on, there's, there's actually a lot of footage now out there on YouTube you can find of Andy Kaufman. And he does these bits on, uh, public access I was telling you about where it would be a setup where it's like he would have, there's this one in particular where he's got Bob Zamuda coming out as a scientist before he comes on. It's a plant, but he's booked as a guest separately and he comes out and he's going on and on about some kind of boring scientific theory, boring the audience. They keep saying like, well, we've got Andy Kaufman later coming out. And then Andy Kaufman comes out and they have to cut the scientist short. (laughs) And they, (laughs) The scientist then gets mad at Andy Kaufman, and Andy Kaufman makes a big show of like, "I'm from Hollywood. You need, to, <laughs> you need to get out of here." Right. Science. It seemed like that aspect of that that super ego, super arrogant aspect played into the wrestling stuff too. Right, and that's I think the main public version you get of uh, mm. Andy Kaufman and what probably Jim Carrey fed into. But there's another really interesting performance of Andy Kaufman on the Midnight Special that is probably my favorite, which is uh, kind of amazing. So the Midnight Special was hosted by Wolfman Jack. It was a film, or maybe in the late or late 70s, early 80s. It was kind of a late show thing that would come on, like the weekends maybe, and there'd be music and kind of guests, and it was like a variety show. And he comes on as a guest to perform a song. This is an original song he comes out and it's just these two guitar players going. One comes out, and the other guitarist, a little higher up. And Andy Kaufman comes out then. Between the two guitars, just kind of swaying back and forth, the two of them. He comes out there and just starts to go. I trusted you, 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 I trusted you. The audience is going mad from like this inane song and and codic like refrain and repeat until he's gone bringing it down low. I trusted you, I trusted you, I trusted you, I trusted you, I trusted you. <laughs> it keeps going and going with this song for five minutes and everyone's going nuts yeah it's great i mean i'm laughing just thinking about it and with your vivid descriptions more so than i laughed at jim carrey 
in this film, Jim and Andy. I wonder the if they, there's an outtake of, of Jim Carrey doing that. Maybe that's somewhere, 100 hours of footage. <laughs> Gotta be in there somewhere. So Andy, Jim Andy, apparently it has to tell, they recreate the scene on Letterman where Lawler slaps Jim. Or slaps Andy. Right. Letterman playing himself. Yeah, Letterman playing Lawler himself. playing himself. Nailed it. Jim Carrey playing... Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman. Or as Jim Carrey would say, Andy was playing himself. Right. But but it's <laughs> funny. So Jim describes how he had he tells Lawler, hit me. Did you really need to tell him? <laughs> you know? I think he would have... I think he had you covered there. Yeah. Jim Carrey's reflections on events seem... Maybe not always accurate. It was all. It was his idea. Always his idea, right? Yeah, yeah. And they we showed a, that angle from us. That's uh, that angle of a slap, and it was like he really decked him. He hit Jim harder than he hit Andy, like no <laughs> doubt, and he loved it. And then later in the film, we f- I feel like Jim took that opportunity and flipped the tables. Okay, now I'm gonna act like I'm really hurt. By yeah. Jerry Lawler. Yes. At the wrestling scene in the in the match. They put him in a neck brace after the ring thing because he spits on Lawler. But this isn't on camera. He's just straight, or it's not on the actual film for the movie. He's just straight up being Andy and taunting him, and he spits on him. And it's it's not like and scene. It was before everything started going. Mm-hmm. He, he had the neck brace on after that, but a lot of times the EMTs will come in. And they'll put it on you just in case, you know, in case there's anything wrong. But I wasn't sure if he was maybe a little. I didn't think he was seriously hurt, but I thought maybe he actually got a little bit hurt. But maybe I'm being pulled over on the spirit of Jim Andy. Who knows? Yeah, you're drinking the Kool-Aid, man. But it seemed like there were genuine reactions of people reacting to that, that it was a thing, which was probably the most, uh, one of the kind of more ingenious moments of the movie to me that line was blurred so well in that regard yeah it's interesting it's like uh chris smith kind of uh he said earlier on when he was starting to work on this film the idea had been out there to interview everyone involved in man on the moon including Milos foreman paul giamatti but he kind of wasn't really interested in doing that that's what he'd been told by spike jones i guess like yeah interview your buddy and but it didn't seem like a good idea to him. And when he started interviewing Jim Carrey, that was, that was to him what was the most interesting part, to just get Jim Carrey really reflecting. And if we watch this footage, that's what it is. It would, you know, and we get, we get uh, Milos Foreman's take through Jim Carrey. Apparently he called him and said, you're doing a great job or whatever he says. Doesn't he even <laughs> right. say that? You're the greatest actor. Uh, I don't think he ever actually said that, but yeah. That's the kind of take we get. We, yeah. we get a lot of interesting interpretations of the events from Jim Carrey's now illuminated perspective of time has has shown him the correctness of his ways. What? How would you? <laughs> now we can't use our patented Herzog scale, but for Man on the Moon, where we would use the Clint Howard scale, how many Clint Howards would you give Man on the Moon? It's been. I've only watched. I only watched it the one time, so I I don't know if I can really. I'm going to give it an N.A. on, on Clint Howard's. Non-applicable? Right. You don't just want to throw it out there? I've probably seen Man on the Moon several times during a time where I was more apt to watch movies over and over again. I can't give it any kind of – I can't give it a rating. I think I can give it a solid – we're not going to document these ratings because we only document 
our documentary ratings. And I think I'd give it a solid Man on the Moon, a solid three Clint Howards. Really? Like a like a straight, like, even good movie. But reflecting on it, I don't know if it was really blowing, blowing it out of the water. You know, it's just a serviceable, like a good straightforward movie. And it helps that I enjoy the subject matter. But I don't know. It seems like four Clint Howards might be a little too much. Like, there are some criticisms of it. And some, like, little things I didn't like about it. I think if I went back and watched it, I would not like it as much. Really? Yeah. Be interesting. Well, we're not required to review feature films. So that Clint Howard rating is just for fun for the people at home. Now, of course, unfortunately, Andy dies of cancer. uh, Yeah, in real life. And and Jim Carrey also dies of cancer in this movie. And, you know, they don't go into it in the documentary, but he goes to a psychic surgeon. With the chicken... The chicken guts, that right. old that old trick. I feel like in Man on the Moon, this is the part that starts to kind of like slip a little. Right. It's not subtle in in this part of the movie. You know, there's it's yeah. just kind of played straight. Like, oh no, Andy, no. There's no real. Yeah, I don't. It's more like uh, at this point in the movie, they take the Bob's Muda version of events, and I just don't know if I buy it all. No, I think there is definitely a lot about Man on the Moon that is. Inaccurate, but this movie, Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, featuring contractually obligated appearance by Tony Clifton. Yeah, this is all real. Yes, and how many Herzogs going to give this one? As I was watching the movie, I kind of sometimes you get a little annoyed. Like I'm getting annoyed a little bit at Jim. Yes, and I'm thinking like, am I annoyed at this movie, or is this movie succeeding because it's annoying me? Yes, that's the question you have to ask yourself in this movie, right? And as character is an endearing. In those emotional up and downs that you see, I really appreciated those moments of the people around him are like, they're annoyed by Jim, but sometimes they're having actual emotional moments regarding what he's doing. I think Jim Carrey, a lot of people will watch this and riff how he's a tool, and he is, but but he didn't completely... Uh, miss the mark on accomplishing what he wanted to do. He actually pulled it off. I'm not sure who would play a better Andy Kaufman. Who do you think would play, like, could anyone play a better, I mean, as far as what I remember of Man on the Moon at the time, that he did a fine job, and he did it as probably as good as anyone who wasn't Andy could do it well enough. I couldn't really think of any actor. No one comes to mind because Andy Kaufman's such a unique figure. You know? Right. What are the, At the time, what are our options, really? Uh, Jamie Kennedy? Yeah. <laughs> Well, Adam Sandler, of course, previously mentioned, I think he could have pulled it off. You know, yeah. He kind of, he gets uh, pretty surprising in these dramatic roles. If uh, Adam Sandler is not writing or directing the movie, then sometimes good things happen. Adam Sandler, for my money, might have been a better Jim Carrey. If if we had Jim Carrey, if we had Adam Sandler playing Jim Carrey playing Andy Kaufman in this documentary. Oh my gosh. Imagine what that would have been like. Adam and Andy in the great beyond. <laughs> I th- yeah, maybe. where does that come from? The Great Beyond. I feel like that's something we were supposed to come to at the end of this. It's. I think it's in the um, new REM song that they recorded for Man on the Moon. I think it was called Great Beyond. I'm bending spoons. I'm keeping flowers in bloom. I'm looking for answers from the Great Beyond. There you go. Answers. So in this movie, we as the audience are supposed to be looking for answers from Jim Jim Andy. I suppose. I don't think uh, Michael Stipe wrote this song with the with the hundred hours of behind-the-scenes footage in mind. I have to assume he did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know my Stipey. I think, if anything, this movie will bring most people back to R.E.M. 
But I didn't answer your question. Yes. About the Herzogs. Right. Our scale is one to five Herzogs. Yes. I'm giving this movie, The Great Beyond, mm-hmm. or Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, featuring a contractually obligated appearance by Tony Clifton. Give this four Herzogs. Really? Four out of five Herzogs. Wow. So they got to accomplish what it was going to do. I don't think it was obviously supposed to. I think you're supposed to make your own decisions on Jim. And I think the idea that he's kind of a blowhard is an obvious part of the movie. But it's just that that contrast and the feelings I get going back and forth between disliking him, but consciously being almost moved by the way other people are moved throughout the film. As a viewer, I thought it worked so well. I got to give this Chris Smith film four out of five Herzogs. I also will give this film four out of five her socks and i will add that i think it's probably the best chris smith film since american movie now if you looked here i don't know have you seen any of the other chris smith films no just this one an american movie okay well i would say that that's probably all you need to see oh yeah have you seen uh, all his other movies unless you really want more now i think he's got a uh, american trilogy there's american job right american movie and american house those three are pretty great but american movie being the best it doesn't quite live up to american movie no american movie was something special so this very unique regionally unique and yeah. you could laugh and you laughed at those characters but you didn't want them to fail yeah you wanted them to uh succeed in their dreams after american movie i was really interested to see what what his next thing would be. And he started a project called Zero TV, actually. So he's from, I think, Wisconsin. Yes. Or Minneapolis. Milwaukee. Milwaukee. Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Minnesota. So Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He started a a website called Zero TV, which was like, I think, one of the first websites I remember going to. And they would have quick time videos of, I don't know, five minute long films that they were working on. It was pretty great. And some of those are still on YouTube. Oh, I'll check that out for sure. Now, we've both rated Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, featured a contractually obligated appearance by Tony Clifton. We've both rated four out of five Herzogs. That's right. We will be documenting, because this we are documenteers, are the best movies in these documentary subcategories. We have the arts, TV, film, art, dance, uh, which is what this movie will qualify under. Uh, that excludes music. Music documentaries are their own thing. Then we'll have true crime, and then we'll have politics and society. Yeah. So we'll get into some real arguments in those episodes. Oh, yeah. Science and nature, also including medicine and natural history. Spirituality and speculation, movies that might be critical of religions or ones that are pro that religion. And, and aliens. All, and aliens and, like, Bigfoot and stuff like that. <laughs> And, of course, uh, history, like world history, military history, stuff like that. The Ken Burns Vietnam, which I really want to get to. Have you watched any of that? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I've been hearing nothing good things about it. So that would go in our history category. So for the time being, Jim and Andy, the great beyond featuring a contractually obligated appearance by Tony Clifton. Is our number one. Is our number one documentary film with four out of five Herzogs. Right. Great. Well, well earned. Way to go, Jim and Andy, the movie. Yeah, Chris Smith made blah, a, blah, blah, blah. a fine movie. Uh, uh, Jim is full of himself. And, and well, you know, we're all the better for having seen that. Yes, it was undeniably entertaining. You know, coming into this movie, historically in context with the current 
time where we are. What we knew of Jim Carrey was that he had a huge beard and that he liked to go to fashion gala events and harass the presenters on the red carpet. <laughs> and that's about all we knew, right? That he, he was just out there trolling. And now we know a little bit more about that side of Jim Carrey. And uh, I think we're all the better for it. <laughs> cool. Was the end of our episode? Just about. I mean, yeah, that's it. Uh, our original music is by A2. More documentaries coming up. We were talking about Room Full of Spoons, the documentary based on The Room, the Tommy Wiseau movie. Yeah, yeah. My wife and I are actually probably going to go see um, The Disaster Artist here tonight, uh, hours later. Oh, wow. So date that, night. That will be exciting. It's date night, right? It's date night, yes. And then there's other things down the pike. Our mutual friend, Drew, we're going to go through the 30 for 30 series. My wife and I will be doing, I think we're going to come up. We want to do Madonna's Truth or Dare. And then there's a documentary. I don't remember the name of it right now, which is about the kids in, in the Truth or Dare Madonna documentary. There's a lot of things down the pike. And there's just tons of documentaries. So there will always be subject matter. Stuart? Yes. I don't think we ever introduced... Ourselves? Yeah, no formal introduction. Right. Well, why would we? <laughs> well, I'm Bob Sham. So this is like an out tradition. <laughs> I guess so. Outroduction. Okay, hopefully I won't have to edit so hard in future episodes. But I'm Bob Sham. I'm Stuart Van. Stuart Vaughn. Stuart Vaughn. Vaughn. Stuart Vaughn. And this is Documenteers. I trusted you. <laughs> <laughs>